Joshua chapter 2. We'll be looking at the entire chapter this morning. Hear God's word. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two spies secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and de deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household." Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window." They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, 
Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The fear of the Lord, as I said earlier, it's a very important phrase in Scripture, one that we must understand, but one that's not easy to understand. Matter of fact, in many ways, I think that the whole course of the Christian life is spent trying to understand what it means to truly fear the Lord in the way that Scriptures talk about it. It's also an important check on our theology. And it's easy to discern in someone's life, in someone's thinking, and in someone's life when they don't believe in the fear of the Lord, that that is how we are to respond to the one true God. I'm reminded of an interview that I heard many years ago, an interview with uh, Prince, the pop singer, or the artist who was formerly called Prince, I guess. He was answering a question in the interview about the content of his songs, and was being asked particularly, how could he justify singing lewd pornographic songs on the same album where he sings songs of devotion to God? He was asked about that seeming inconsistency. His answer was telling. He said, I don't have anything to do with the organized church. I don't buy their view of a God that must be feared. I believe God is love. When we do something wrong, he doesn't spank us. He gives us a time out. What you believe about God makes a huge difference in how you live your life. Whether you believe that the fear of the Lord is meant to be an important aspect of how you relate to the one true God has a big impact on how you live your life. Now, we who believe the Bible, and I'm hoping that almost all of you here this morning believe that the Bible is the very word of God. If those of you who don't believe that, hear us out. Uh, We believe that you will be convinced if you're open to the message of the word. But if you believe the Bible, then it's not hard for us to understand why we should fear God if you really understand who the Bible reveals God to be. He is infinite. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's omnipresent. He's present everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things and is the source of all truth. He is holy and he is just. If you do not fear God while acknowledging those characteristics of God, then you actually don't know what those adjectives mean. You have to to reject the scripture's testimony to who God is to not understand why a human being would fear God. There was a picture that was passed around all over the place on the internet this past week. It was a picture of a tornado approaching a town. In the foreground of the picture, you had a man with his back to the tornado. The tornado's in the background. He's got his back to the tornado, and he's pushing a lawnmower in his backyard. That was a jarring picture. The idea that somebody would be so casually doing something so trivial like mowing his lawn when a tornado is about to hit his town. But as I looked at that picture and everybody else was kind of laughing at it, it's such an odd picture, I was thinking, what a vivid picture of humanity. Judgment is coming. All men will have to stand before God and give an account. And God is, as we saw in our call to worship, a consuming fire, a holy God who cannot look upon sin 
and must destroy sin wherever he sees it. And yet we turn our back upon him and casually go about our business, ignoring his presence and ignoring the reality of his coming judgment. So we, though, who believe the scriptures, understand God to be who he has revealed himself to be. But what about the fear thing? Is that really appropriate for Christians? God loves us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He redeemed us by sending his son to die for us. We're forgiven of our sins by grace through faith. We're given the gift of the righteousness of Christ. We stand before God and are seen as righteous as a gift of grace. And we are no longer under God's condemnation. What place does fear have in our relationship with God? Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And yet we have to hold in tension a verse like that with other verses that say that, that fear of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or Psalm 19 that says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Or the Proverbs that says the fear of the Lord prolongs life. And actually one of the greatest, most condemning things you can say about an unbeliever is, in the words of scripture, that they do not fear the Lord. And then, of course, there's the book of Ecclesiastes, which is given to us as a book to teach us philosophy, to teach us how to have a right view of ourselves and the world that we live live in under God. And it ends with this verse, chapter 12, verse 13. It says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So... Even though we are redeemed and forgiven and righteous in the sight of God, we are still to live in the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? How do we do that? The question I want to ask this morning is how do fear and faith and obedience all go together in the life of the believer? Fear, faith, and obedience. I talk about this because the whole context, the whole background of chapter 2 in the book of Joshua is fear. People are genuinely, understandably, reasonably afraid in this chapter. Matter of fact, if this were to be written up as a screenplay and turned into a movie, it would be a suspense movie. It would be a spy movie. Real cloak and dagger stuff. It's meant to be a story that keeps you on the edge of your seat. And if it were made a movie and was done well, you would be on the edge of your seat as you watched it every step of the way. Remember that fear was the issue a generation earlier. Moses had already led the people of Israel to the edge of the promised land, to this place across the river, the Jordan River, from Canaan, the promised land. He had already led them there a generation earlier, but it was fear that kept them out. Remember, Moses had sent spies into the land, but they came back saying, we saw a big Massive, fortified cities, and worse than that, we saw giants in the land. And we were as grasshoppers in their eyes, and we were grasshoppers in our own eyes compared to them. We can't do it. And the people didn't believe the promise of God. 
and they came under God's judgment and died in the wilderness. So here we are a generation later, they're back in the same place, across the river, from the same land, with all the same big fortified cities, all the same giants living there. And God says again, I'm giving you the land, go take it. You can understand the trepidation that the people of God felt, that Joshua must have felt. And so his first step is not to actually pick up camp and attempt, start to prepare to cross the river, which was a, an, a, a, an imposing task in and of itself. We'll get to that in chapter 3. But that's not his first step. His first step is to send spies into the land. They're going to do some reconnoitering. I just like that word. I've been waiting all week to say reconnoiter. I don't get to use that word in preaching very often, so you might hear it a few times today. I like talking about reconnoitering. They went on a reconnaissance mission to search out the land. And we're going to look at the example of Joshua in sending the spies, but particularly the central figure, the very surprising central figure of chapter 2, Rahab. And we're going to look at how fear of God, faith in God, and obedience to God necessarily go together. In a very real sense, that's a summary of the Christian life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then your whole life is about fear of the Lord and faith in the Lord and obedience to the Lord, and they are necessarily connected. The Christian life begins with seeing how awesome God is by faith, awesome in his power, awesome in his presence, awesome in his holiness, awesome in his justice, and awesome in his mercy. And then trusting, putting your faith in the promises of this great God. And then because you have put your faith in the promises of this great God and in the person of this great God, you then go and obey this great God and live to do his will. So let's look at how this took place in the life of Joshua. Joshua's fear of the Lord, his faith in the Lord, and his obedience to the Lord. It's kind of surprising, like I said at this point, that he's such a minor figure in this chapter. After setting him up as, as the, the great leader of God's people in chapter 1. But remember what God had said to him in chapter 1. He said, I am giving the people of Israel this land, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon. And then he ends his speech to Joshua by saying, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed. He says, I am sending you to an impossible task. You cannot accomplish this if I am not with you. You cannot accomplish this apart from faith in me. This is, these cities are too fortified for the armies of Israel. These people are too big and too powerful for the people of Israel. You cannot do this. But I am giving you the land. You need to trust in my promise and obey and go take the land. And so the first question you've got to ask yourself at the beginning of this chapter is, why does Joshua send spies in then? You would think that we'd skip right to chapter 3. Because in chapter 3, they make preparations to cross the river. Isn't that what God speaks, tells you to do it? You know, we think back to Abraham when he was called out of the land of Haran. God spoke to him said go, and very next thing the scripture says, he went. Why doesn't Joshua just go? Why does he send the spies? And there are people who think that this reflects a lack of faith for Joshua, that he needed some extra assurance. 
Maybe, maybe, you know, I'll send, I know what the spies told Moses a generation ago, but maybe if I send spies in now, we'll get some encouragement and find out that, that things aren't really as bad as we were told a generation ago, or they aren't as big, or the cities aren't as great. He needed reassurance. Maybe that's what it is, but I don't think so. I think what we see here in Joshua is how faith normally responds to the challenges and the missions that Lord, the Lord gives us in life. It does the normal, reasonable, expected thing. Going about your life the normal way, waiting for a word from the Lord, waiting for an intervention from the Lord, but doing what the Lord would have you today, do today to prepare for what he would have you do tomorrow. We know, we've read the book. We know what happens in chapter 6. In chapter 6, the Lord does a miracle, a spectacular miracle. All they do is blow some horns and the walls fall down. They didn't have to go to battle. They didn't have to go through all the normal strategizing, all the reconnoitering. There, I said it again. They didn't have to do all that. The God was going to do this great miracle. But Joshua didn't know that in chapter 2, did he? Joshua didn't know that God was going to make the walls fall down with a shout. For all he knew, they had to go about normal principles and policies of warfare in order to take the city, to do it the normal human way. In the future, if, as we, again, we've read the end of the book, we've read the book of Joshua, hopefully we know that some of the battles they won, they won by God's divine intervention. God did a great miracle to, make a, to cause them to win the battle, to take the land in some cases. But there are other battles they won doing what we would call normal conventional warfare for the time. And so what are we to do when we don't know? Is God going to intervene? Is God going to do some great thing? We don't know. So what do we do? We do what we would normally do today. Good stewards of the resources and opportunities that he gives us. And we step forward in faith, but we step forward in the best wisdom that we can to do what he's called us to do. Fearing God means recognizing that he is sovereign over all things. He can not only just snap his fingers and make anything happen, he can speak and make anything happen. He can make the world come into existence just by speaking. But in our lives, he works by both ordinary means, or what we'd call in theology secondary means, and he also works by extraordinary means. Sometimes he'll do something miraculous, but the vast majority of the time, he works through ordinary means to bring about what he has called us to do, to bring about his will and to fulfill his promises. What Joshua shows us is that planning and strategizing and preparation and hard work aren't antithetical to faith. We have a tendency to think that faith means sitting, sitting in our prayer closet, down on our knees, just praying and praying and praying and waiting for God to make it happen or sitting in our easy chair and saying, well, when God makes it happen, that's great. But until then, I'm just going to take it easy. No, planning, strategizing, preparation and hard work are not antithetical to faith. They're one of the, the uh, great uh, quotes from Oliver Cromwell, who was the, uh, the, the commander of the Puritan troops during the English Civil War and late, eventually became the Lord Protector during that time. He, this was his philosophy of going to battle, summed up in a phrase. He said, trust in God and keep your powder dry. In other words, make sure that you're prepared. 
Make sure that your resources are at hand. Make sure your plans are in place. All the while trusting that God is going to work in you, through you, or in spite of you to do what he's promised he's going to do. It reminds me of one of the temptations that Satan brought against our Lord Jesus Christ in the wilderness. It's interesting to me that one of the three temptations that Satan used was to take him to the top of the very pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And he said to him, throw yourself down. He actually quotes scripture in tempting Christ to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple, trusting in God to preserve him. This is what he says. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus' answer to that temptation is profound. He says, Against, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here's how I interpret that, especially in light of what we're looking at here with Joshua. What he's saying is to take a leap of faith, trusting in God's miraculous provision, when God has not made a promise specific to you and your circumstances, that is not faith, it's presumption upon God. It's presumption upon the grace of God. Jesus could have jumped off of the pinnacle of the temple and angels could have caught him and protected him. That could happen. But for him to do it without God commanding it to be done and promising his provision would not have been faith on Jesus' part. And so that's what, when we face the big issues in life, when we pray for God to intervene. What does he expect of us in the meantime? He expects us to prepare, to plan, to strategize, to gather resources, and to step out in faith doing the normal thing that you would do in life, trusting that he will either use your efforts, hard work and planning and preparation as a means to get his will done, or he will intervene according to his timing, according to his will. But you cannot presume upon that. Faith is hard work and preparation and doing the mundane, normal things in life. I'm just going to use an example that all of us can identify with because we're, we've been talking for five years now about doing a building project here at Oakwood. And I'll tell you, every day I pray that God is going to do some miraculous intervention that I'm, we're going to show up at the church and there's going to be a check there in the mail for $2 million that's going to make it possible for us to go ahead and do this building and get it done and move on with the ministry that we're supposed to be doing. But it hasn't happened. And I'm not saying it couldn't happen. But we're going to keep doing the million small, tiny, little human plans, preparations that have already been done. There have been so many little human normal things that have been done to get us to where we are on the verge of breaking ground. That's being faithful. That's faith in the Lord. Knowing that he normally works through those mundane things to accomplish his will. And why does he do that? Think about it for a minute. God could fill our lives with miracles. And there are some professing Christians who want that. They wake up every morning praying for God to do miracles to show himself to them all day and to do great things. And God almost never does. 
Could he? Absolutely. He has the power to do it in a moment. But he knows that if we live based on faith in what we can see, which are miracles, then that is not a very deep faith. Faith is doing what you're supposed to be doing, believing what you know is true about God and his will and the future. Not having some miracle come along to confirm it 10 times a day. Faith is just being faithful in the little things every day, no matter how mundane they are, doing the will of God. Joshua understood that. So taking the land to Joshua meant sending in spies, getting reconnaissance, planning, strategizing, organizing his troops, all the normal things, trusting in God every step of the way. But I want to spend the rest of the time looking at Rahab. She's the central figure in this chapter. The spies go into Jericho, the first city to be taken. And it's a very surprising move, very surprising sentence in the story. They go to the house of a prostitute in order to stay the night. We've been culturally conditioned in this kind of dark, depraved culture. We've been culturally conditioned to think, well, they must have gotten off track. Well, they must decide to have a little fun in the midst of their mission there. No, I don't think that's it at all. I think it's a really smart move, actually. They went to a place where the neighbors, the people in the city, knew there were strange men frequenting that place all the time. That's a place where they could stay, where their presence wouldn't draw any special attention. Understand that the city of Jericho was on high alert. They could see the hundreds of thousands of Israelites across the river. It was on high alert. They were looking for spies. How would these men be able to survive the night without being detected? So they went to a place where men are going in and out all the time. That's my, it doesn't, the script, the text doesn't say that, but that's my suspicion. I don't think they were off track here. I think they were, again, using strategy to accomplish what they were called to do. But the plan didn't work and their cover was quickly blown and the text tells us that informants went to tell the king of that city-state that the Israelite spies were at Rahab's house. And imagine yourself, again, imagine this being turned into a screenplay and turned into a movie, a suspense movie, a spy movie. This is when the music hits a crescendo. This is when you're really on the edge of your seat. What's going to happen? Because these spies' lives were in the hands of Rahab, humanly speaking. All she had to do is say, yeah, they're up on the roof. You know, and, and the story's kind of over at that point. They would be dead men. But instead, we find out that she had already hidden them on the roof. And when the, when the soldiers come to the door, she essentially says to them, oh yeah, they were here, but you just missed them. If you hurry, you can still catch them. They went that away, you know. And what really surprises me in the story at this point, the most surprising element, is that, again, I've watched too many of these spy movies. I like spy movies. I've watched too many of them. If I were writing the screenplay at this point, I would have one of the spies, one of the Israelite spies, in a, in, a, in a room off to the side with a knife to the throat of her mother or her father or her, her brother or sister, saying, if you rat us out to these soldiers, this loved one's going to die. Because that's what always happens in the movies. That's how they get out of these situations. But that's not. They're up on the roof hiding. Why did she not rat them out? Why did she not turn them over to the soldiers? We'll see why in a minute. 
Matter of fact, that's the focus of the whole passage is why she didn't. But I take a moment here to address the elephant in the room, the one that everybody wants to ask, and I know somebody's going to ask me out of the service if I don't take a few minutes to address this. If this was an act of faith on Rahab's part, how is it not sinful for her to lie? Is it ever, is this situational ethics, is there ever a situation where it's okay to lie in the sight of God? Well, much smarter men in church, the history of the church have debated this, much smarter men than I. I'll tell you right now, I don't know. I don't know whether it was wrong for her to lie or not. Should she have told the truth and just believed that God would somehow provide? I don't know, but I'm not prepared to stand up here and say there are any situations where it's okay to lie. I'm not prepared to say that, but I wrestle with it, like I'm sure many of you have too, especially in times of war. If you know anything about the history of the, the D-Day invasion, when the Allied troops invaded France and turned the whole tide of World War II, if there was not deception, massive deception going on in that whole effort, it would have never been successful from a human perspective. They had fake airplanes and whole airfields that were fake set up to fool the, the Nazis. They sent out false weather reports. They sent out uh, false intelligence to fool the Nazis. If, if you didn't have deception in war, it's hard to imagine humanly how you would win a war. But on a much more personal note, we know if you've read anything about Corey Ten Boom and her family, they really wrestled with whether it was right for them to lie or not about whether they were hiding Jews from the Nazis. And I just admire the struggle. I, you know, and I, I, my best advice is I don't know. If you're in that situation, first of all, I'd say pray you never get in that situation. And I would hazard a guess that 99 out of 100 of you will never be in a situation like that. Either a military journal having to strategize in a battle or having to hide somebody from an invading force. I hope, you know, probably nobody here is going to face it. So my bottom line answer to that is just tell the truth because you're probably not going to face that situation. But if you do, just pray for wisdom. I don't know. But I love what one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, said. He said, it's better to focus on what Rahab said that was true in other words, her confession of faith, than on what she said that was false. Better to focus on what she said that was true instead of getting all caught up in what she said that was false, that was a lie. And that's where I want to go. The focus of the whole passage, look at verse 9. Listen to what he said, she says carefully to the spies. I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Wow, what a confession of faith by a pagan Canaanite prostitute, no less. There is a ton of Orthodox Hebrew Jewish theology in what she says there. Let me just list it for you quickly. First of all, she fears God. She says, we're afraid of the power of this God. So she begins by saying, and remember, fear the Lord. If the Holy Spirit is work, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. She begins by saying, we're terrified of your God and therefore your armies. 
Secondly, notice if in most of your English translations, the word Lord is capitalized, every letter, L-O-R-D, all four are capitalized. Whenever you see that in an English translation, what that means is in the original Hebrew, the word for Lord there is actually the name Yahweh. The personal covenant name of God. The personal name that God gave to Moses for the people of God. The name of God that is associated with his covenant of redemption. The name that speaks of his covenant faithfulness to his people. This Canaanite prostitute calls him Yahweh. She understands that this is the God who is the covenant of God who keeps his promises. Thirdly, she recognizes his sovereign authority over the land of Canaan. She says, the Lord has given you the land. He is the all-powerful God. Matter of fact, in verse 11, she, he, she says, he is the God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, I don't know if she is purely monotheist at this point. We don't know because she was coming from a polytheistic culture. But she understood that God is the sovereign God of heaven and earth, and he owns the land, and he gives it to whomever he pleases. And he has given it to the Israelites. Fourthly, she knows about the exodus, the great redemptive works of God in the land of Egypt. She doesn't particularly mention the ten plagues, those miraculous plagues that led to the deliverance of the people, but she does mention particularly the parting of the Red Sea where God delivered his people and destroyed the enemies of his people. She mentions the kings that were defeated on the other side of the Jordan. So she knows probably all the stories. They've been coming to them from the traitors and you know, being passed along by word of mouth. She knew the stories, what God had been doing during their time in the wilderness. And so she sees God as Yahweh, the covenant God who keeps his promises to people. And she's heard the stories of how he has provided for and protected his people through the wilderness. And then finally, we also see in her confession of faith that somehow she has hope that God may have mercy even upon her, an enemy of God's people. At the end of verse 10, she speaks of the enemies of Israel being devoted to destruction. You see that phrase there at the end of verse 10? That's the technical language for the mission that God had given to the people of Israel to basically cleanse the land of the Canaanites, to wipe them out completely, to destroy the, the, the people of Canaan, to bring his judgment upon them because their cup of iniquity was full. How in the world could she ever hope that she might receive mercy since she knew that that was God's mission? upon his people. Well, I take you to the example of Noah. Noah preached and told the people that judgment was coming, that God was going to cleanse the earth of those who lived in wickedness and rebellion and save only Noah and his family, a family of faith. But Peter tells us that, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Noah, we know then, was preaching to the people of his era and that there was an implied offer that even though God is coming in judgment, if you will put your faith in this God, you can be saved, even though none of them took him up on it. We know that Jonah went into the city of Nineveh in Assyria, and he says in three days the city is going to be destroyed. Judgment is coming. He didn't say anything about mercy or forgiveness, and yet the people repented and God relented of his judgment 
And so in the statement that judgment was coming, the, if, the fact that God tells you that judgment is coming, there's always an implication that get on your knees and repent and cry out for mercy and there's hope for you. And so that is where Rahab puts her hope. And the book of Hebrews confirms to us that her faith was genuine. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And it's interesting, over in the book of James, it mentions, talk about how true faith produces good works. And he uses Rahab an example, as an example of how faith works. True faith produces good works. Rahab put her trust in God's mercy. And so the spies say, okay, Rahab, you and your family. Now, take note of that. God works that way. Believers and their families. Believers and their households. The spies say, to, using that principle of the covenant, he says to Rahab, you and your family will be protected when God's judgment comes to destroy the city. You'll be protected if you do three things. First of all, you put a red cord in your window. Secondly, stay in the house when, when the judgment comes. Thirdly, keep all this a secret from the authorities. If she will do those three things based on her faith in Yahweh, she and her household will be saved. Let me point out another thing you may be wondering about. What's with the red cord? Why does the scripture go to the point of making, like making sure we know it was a red cord? Well, there are many scholars in the history of the church who said it's that redness points to the blood of Christ. It's a, it's a sign that foreshadowed the blood of Christ. Is that what God intends for that to mean? I don't know. Again, I don't know. I think as a good expository, you have to be careful not to make connections where the scripture doesn't spell it out. If the scripture doesn't say this is what the sign means, you have to be very careful to say that's what the sign means. But having said that, and that's my caveat, I think it does point to the blood of Christ, and here's why I think so. These were Israelite spies. Israelite spies who knew what happened in the Exodus. When judgment spread through the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn, how did the households of Israel avoid God's judgment? They took the blood of the Passover lamb and they put it on the doorposts of their house. These spies knew that story very, very well. You can't tell me that they didn't cross their mind when they said put a red cord in your window to mark your household as a household that will be spared God's judgment when it comes that they didn't make the connection in their minds. And there is a clear connection between the blood of the Passover lamb and the blood of Christ, which was shed to take away our sin. It, I think it does point to the only hope of deliverance from the coming judgment of this holy, just, and merciful God. His mercy is given to those who will put their hope in what that red cord probably represented, what the blood of the Passover lamb certainly represented, which is Christ's death on the cross, which took the condemnation, the guilt of our sins, put them on Christ. He paid for it in full and now offers salvation, forgiveness, his righteousness, and eternal life to all who will put their trust in that redeeming work of Christ. That red cord probably was a sign pointing us forward to the gospel. And the last note in the story is that not only was Rahab and her household delivered, as we'll see later, 
But the book of Ruth and the book of Matthew both tell us that she was in the family tree, the royal family tree of King David. And of course, that means she was in the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. How great is the mercy of God that not just an enemy of God, a Canaanite, not just an enemy of God, but a prostitute could be delivered by faith from the coming judgment of God. That same offer is still available. Judgment is coming. This world will be purged by fire. All that is sinful and flawed will be removed from it. And our crucified and risen Savior is coming again. And when he comes, he will come to bring final judgment. But if you will put your trust in the blood of Christ, in the redeeming work of Christ, the promises of God that are based on what Christ did for us on the cross, that judgment will pass over you. You will be accepted as a child of God by faith alone. In the meantime, how are you to live? Obedience that flows from faith. Knowing that God is at work in you and through you and his mission is ongoing until Christ returns, be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in the mundane details of life, trusting that God is at work in the background. And do not fear. Go back to that original command to Joshua. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Be courageous. I'm reminded of Mark Twain who once said, Courage is the mastery of fear, not the absence of fear. We think courageous people don't have fear. That's not true. There's a, there was a whole ad campaign that was, you know, T-shirts and headbands, everything said no fear. That's a, that's a myth. That's a fallacy. The most courageous people in the world are, are people that are afraid. But they master their fear. And the way that believers master our fear is knowing that God works all things together for good and that we are forgiven and we are eternally secure in Christ no matter what happens in this life. Let's pray. Father, the mission that you have placed upon our lives and upon our church is pretty mundane compared to the the physical warfare that the people of Israel were called to in this period of history. But Lord, in many ways, it's more profound, it's more deep, it's more spiritual. We do not fight with the weapons of this world. We fight with the word of God and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we believe that your promises that are contained in your word are true and all the things that you have said will come to pass will come to pass. And Lord, we thank you that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light, that you've opened our eyes, opened our ears, you've given us hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone so that we might know and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in him, trust in his promises, and then obey in faith. Thank you for your work of grace in us. May that faith be deepened. May that obedience become more complete. We pray by your grace alone. In Christ's name, amen.